everyone. It is not beautiful outside. Just forget about it. That's not happening. Uh, this is where the action is. You can have a pretty day any day, but this is, this is a, a very rare event for the Virginia Historical Society to be able to display one of the most crucial documents in the history of the United States. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm uh, president of the University of Richmond. Uh, but I'm also on the board of the Virginia Historical Society, and I have the honor to, to say a few words to help frame uh, the real speakers uh, of the day. Uh, our first speaker is uh, someone who has played a leading role in the crucial issues of justice and equality that the 13th Amendment is meant to embody. Senator Marsh has been a senator since 1992. He's the uh, survivor of a, a living uh, inheritor of the tradition of the great civil rights struggles of the early 1950s and the Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, and for so many decades now, through as times have changed, different kinds of leadership in the country, different sense of direction in which we're going, uh, he's been a steadfast voice on behalf of what this nation can be and speaking to us of racial justice. So I'm honored to bring Senator Marsh up to say a few words and put this in the context of the work that his commission's been doing for so long. I'm proud to say that this is a part of uh, the future of Richmond's past, a collaboration among all the museums and organizations of the city. So I'm hoping after you're done here today that you'll go out and see things all the way from Lincoln's Jail uh, to um, Tredegar to the Black History and Cultural Center, Maggie Walker, because our city, our city has so much to share on this important front. But now, Senator Marsh. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And I thank you, Ed, for being here and for your role in this event. I'm Henry L. Marsh. I'm the uh, chairman of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission. I'm a senator from the 16th District. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome each one of you here today and to uh, kick this program off. Um, I had the occasion to look at the uh, 13th Amendment upstairs. And it brought back memories of conversations that I had with, between Mr. Tucker, Mr. Hill, and myself. And they jokingly said that the 13th Amendment was your amendment. I claimed it as my amendment because it was the amendment that made my ancestors free, and it's the reason why I'm free today. So I'm very pleased to be here on this occasion. The exhibit of the 13th Amendment is uh, one of the many events that the Martin Luther King Memorial Commission planned. Back in 2009, we began planning for the sesquicentennial celebration. And during the Lincoln, during the bicentennial celebration for Lincoln, we discovered that not much attention was paid to the most significant cause of the war. And that was being lost in the celebration of the Civil War. So as chairman of the King Commission, I increased the membership of our Lincoln subcommittee to include several representatives of public and private agencies, professional and community organizations, and other citizens with interest in history and, and, and civil war. And for that reason, we organized the Lincoln Bicentennial Subcommittee and is headed by Dr. Robert C. Vaughan, a member of the commission and president of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities of the Arts. And Dr. Vaughan is here, would you stand please? He's done it. We are fortunate to have the opportunity to partner with the Virginia Historical Society to bring the 13th Amendment to Richmond. This is the first and only time that this significant and historic document has been on exhibit in Virginia. I'm particularly grateful for the assistance of Dr. Laurenette Lee, the uh, member of our Lincoln Subcommittee and the curator of African American history at the Virginia Historical Society for her diligence and hard work in making this event possible. On behalf of the entire commission, and I see many of the members here, uh, I express grateful appreciation to Dr. Edward Ayers, the president of the University of Richmond, for his leadership in establishing the future of Richmond's past, which allows all Virginians to come to grips with, the, with our shared past and our common future. I'm also pleased that the 
Commission can partner in the exhibit of the 13th Amendment, which happens to coincide with the Civil War weekend in Richmond, which is organized by the future of Richmond's past. This is an exciting day to be a citizen of Richmond. There's so much going on, and we are a part of it. And I told Dr. Ayers that I'm claiming credit for the good weather. Now it's my pleasure to present Dr. Ayers for another introduction. Thank you so much. And we're all grateful for the good weather, sir. So thank you so much. Now it's, it's my honor to get to announce our main speaker today, Dr. Lornette Lee. And uh, I have to admit, I'm a poor person to introduce her uh, because uh, we go way back. And uh, actually had the opportunity to be her advisor at the University of Virginia when she was writing the doctorate that made her doctor, Laurenette Lee. And uh, she doesn't know this, but I had a chance to speak in Charlottesville uh, a few weeks ago at the Virginia Festival of the Book, uh, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities sponsored. And uh, my BAFO ending uh, was telling a story about the school uh, founded by the, 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 the teacher from Massachusetts who came down uh, and telling the story that we tend to forget that emancipation wasn't something just happened on one day. It was something that occurred over a generation or and occurring even today. But telling the story about the Mudwall School and about the UVA boys going by and throwing rocks through the windows while these young people who had brought their nickels and dimes in to try to learn how to read. And the sort of the struggle that emancipation marks. So Larnette taught me that uh, as she has so much in the years that we've had a chance to work together. Are you speaking about unknown no longer? Uh, this one? Well, you're intrigued for that because uh, Lornette has overseen a remarkable new tool that helps us to look into slavery in a way that we've not been able to before. Uh, Lornette is the curator of African American manuscripts here at the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, she's a, a great voice of uh, good in our community, uh, a, a radiant spirit. And one thing she's taught me, and she reminds me each time that I see her, that it's good always to drink lots of water. And so she actually brought me a bottle today. And I am, because of this wonderful weather that Senator Marsh brought, a little bit dehydrated. Uh, and so one of the many things that Laurenette Lee has taught me, and I know she's going to teach us some more things right now. Dr. Laurenette Lee. Thank you so much, Ed. I appreciate all that you are doing and have done. And Senator Marsh, the opportunity to be involved in this endeavor means so very much. Dr. Vaughn is in charge of the Lincoln Bicentennial Subcommittee. He chairs that, and he's really let me take a, a leadership role in, in that subcommittee, and I'm very glad for that. I hope you have had an opportunity to look at an editorial that Ed and I wrote last week. It was published in the Richmond Times-Dispatch on Sunday. And Eileen Paris is here. She's the editor of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And the editors are the, the silent uh, people that really make uh, the work uh, sing. They are the ones that put it together and make it readable. And thank you so much, Eileen, for the work um, that you did almost at the last minute. I appreciate that. Uh, Brenda and uh, Valerie are here from the um, King Commission, and we did all of this in the, the space of two weeks. And all of my colleagues here who are volunteering today, thank you so very much. We are honored. We are honored for your presence. Um, and the fact that we were able to bring a congressional copy of the 13th Amendment at this particular time, during Civil War and Emancipation Month, and on this day, really says a lot about our commitment to educate the public in whatever ways that we can. Um, when we think about those words, they're basically 43 words that say neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Now, it's basically very dry, 
but what it meant that people were finally, those people who had been enslaved were finally legally free. They had the dignity of identity. The 13th Amendment capped a series of Civil War emancipation endeavors, including the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and the territories, the Confiscation Act of 1862, and President Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. The proclamation, however, did not make slavery illegal, and it freed only those enslaved people who were in areas still in rebellion after 1862. Life under slavery still existed for enslaved persons living in the border states, Kentucky, Maryland, Tennessee, West Virginia, and some parts of Virginia. Since the proclamation was based on Lincoln's war powers, Republicans were concerned that the proclamation would be considered a temporary war measure. So they worked strenuously for passage of the bill with strong support from President Lincoln. When the 13th Amendment was first proposed, there had been no new amendments adopted in more than 60 years. Imagine that, 60 years. The first 10 amendments had been adopted in 1791 as the Bill of Rights, followed by the 11th Amendment in 1795 and the 12th Amendment in 1804. All 12 amendments had been ratified within 15 years after the Constitution's adoption. Now, proposals had been made to abolish slavery as well as protect the institution. In the wake of the presidential election of 1860 that brought Abraham Lincoln to the White House, the slaveholding states of the American South, led by South Carolina, began withdrawing from the nation. And in the midst of this constitutional crisis, President James Buchanan, still in office until Lincoln's inauguration in March of 1861, attempted to reassure the South that their slave property, people, those people who were enslaved, would remain enslaved, would remain safe as their property, even under the incoming Republican administration that some slaveholders believed would be abolitionist. President Buchanan asked Congress to draft what he called an explanatory amendment to the Constitution that would explicitly recognize the rights of states to sanction human bondage and protect the rights of slaveholders to maintain their human property. In response, the House of Representatives established a 33-member committee to prepare a draft for the President's consideration. Within weeks, the committee came back and delivered to the full house a document that many hoped would satisfy the South. This proposed 13th Amendment reflected the apprehension of all of those who in late 1860 believed that they were witnessing the dissolution of the nation and life as they knew it. Without using the word slavery or slave, the proposed amendment would deny to Congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. There was no mention of the right of Congress to restrict the spread of slavery into national territories that might at some future point become states in the Union. This had been the major point of contention since the Supreme Court's 1857 decision in the case of Dred Scott. Scott was a slave who sought his freedom on the grounds that his owner had allowed him to live in a free territory for a number of years. The court rejected Scott's claim of freedom, ruling that under the Constitution, Congress had no right to exclude slavery from the, from the territories. Then, on February 8, 1864, a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery, as well as guarantee equality, was submitted. This after strenuous efforts from the Republicans. By April 8, the Senate passed the amendment by a vote of 38 to 6. The House failed to reach the required number of votes. President Lincoln was reelected and in his reelection speech, one of the phrases he used was to bind up the nation's wounds. And he did that in every way that he could. After the bill was reintroduced, President Lincoln rallied support 
working tirelessly for its passage through the House by ensuring the amendment was added to the Republican Party platform for the upcoming presidential elections. And then finally, on January 31st, 1865, the House passed the bill by a vote of 119 to 56. Virginia ratified the amendment in February, and the 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6, 1865 by 27 states and declared in effect on December 18, 1865 by Secretary of State William H. Seward. Earlier this week, when the 13th Amendment, the congressional copy of the 13th Amendment arrived here at the Virginia Historical Society, I had the opportunity to see it for the first time with five of my colleagues. I was the only person of color. And I will always remember the feelings that I had to be in that moment, in that moment of cascading circumstances where I, the only person of color, could read those words and see those signatures. I remember the feeling of gratitude to have come this far and to witness this time the signatures of those men who believe that America must abolish slavery are a testament to a faith in something unseen. An amendment to the United States Constitution does not require the president's signature or that of anyone else, except possibly the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives attesting to its passage by Congress. Yet, the president did sign this amendment, and he signed it by his full name, Abraham Lincoln. The president's approval was unnecessary since a constitutional amendment passed in both houses to the states for ratification. That said, Lincoln did sign the official copy as well as 13 souvenir copies of the amendment resolution. Now, he was mildly censured by Congress for affixing his signature to the official copy. On February 4, 1865, Mr. Lyman Trumbull submitted the following resolution for consideration. Quote, resolved that the article of amendment proposed by Congress to be added to the Constitution of the United States respecting the extension of slavery therein, having been inadvertently presented to the president for his approval, it is hereby declared that such approval was unnecessary to give effect to the action of Congress in proposing said amendment, inconsistent with the former practice in reference in, in, inconsistent with the former practice in reference to all amendments to the Constitution heretofore adopted and being inadvertently done should not constitute a precedent for the future. And the Secretary is hereby instructed not to communicate the notice of the approval of said proposed amendment by the President to the House of Representatives. Then three days later, on February 7th, the Senate took up the issue again. Quote, the Senate proceeded to consider the resolution submitted by President on the fourth instant in relation to the pres presentation by the Committee on Enrolled Bills of the Enrolled Joint Resolution, submitting to the legislatures of the several states a proposition to amend the Constitution of the United States to the President for his approval, declaring such approval unnecessary and directing the Secretary to withhold from the House of Representatives the message of the President informing the Senate that he had approved and signed the same, and after debate, the resolution was agreed to. So we must wonder, why is it that President Lincoln signed this amendment? It could be because he had had a change of heart over the years. Initially, he was not going to interfere with this institution, but he came to see that it was inherently wrong. It did not fit with founding resolutions that our forefathers had put forth in all of the documents. The original document is at the National Archives. There were a number of souvenir copies produced in both the House and the Senate that were signed by Lincoln. And this copy that we have is coming to us from the Gilder Lehrman collection. It will also be here tomorrow, and we will be open from 1 until 5. What does this 13th Amendment really mean, though? It meant freedom and opportunities. 
It meant having the dignity of identity. It meant a kind of freedom that had not been known before for people of African descent. It meant that couples could marry legally and raise their families together without the constant threat of being sold and torn apart. It meant freedom from sexual exploitation that had dogged enslaved women for centuries. It meant opportunities like being free to learn to read and write without censure or punishment. Freedom meant organizing churches and freedom to worship with what, without oversight. It meant moving about freely without having to obtain permission. It meant owning land, having a fair trial before a jury if charged with a crime, voting, citizenship, and having the same rights as white people. It meant that labor would produce income for the laborer and not the owner. The 13th Amendment meant that enslaved people, like 22-year-old Abram, the property of Andrew Ellett of Richmond, would now be able to claim his life and the profits from his labors. Before the war, Ellett claimed that Abram was worth $1,300. During the war, Abram's value increased to $5,000. As an able-bodied man, Abram's brawn and skills could have been used in any number of ways to support the Confederacy. He may have worked in the Tredegar Iron Works, or he may have helped to build fortifications around Richmond. He would have been one of more than 10,000 enslaved men between the ages of 18 and 45 who had been compelled to work for the Confederacy. The amendment also meant that slave owners lost heavy investments in their human property. For two-year-old Cora, who was also listed on Ellett's list, she was valued at $100 prior to the war and $200 during the war. Cora would know, began to know an America that was much closer to the ideals of the founding fathers. A list of can be seen at our website, um, Unknown No Longer, which we just launched uh, last year. And we have also placed a copy of that list at the governor's mansion as well. It is one of thousands of documents that provide a glimpse into a critical moment in America that changed the lives of young and old, black and white. And these documents help us understand what life was like for people who had gone for so long without the dignity of identity. The 13th Amendment is the document that changed lives forever. It enables us to lift our voices and sing, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land where our fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Peace be with you. I will take your comments, your questions, your concerns. We have people in the audience with uh, microphones, VHS staff members. Thank you. If I may, uh, Dr. Lee, uh, thank you for your comments. The, I and perhaps others tend to think of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as a package deal. But in fact, there was a couple years difference mm -hmm. before they were adopted. Was that a deliberate political strategy, or did folks find that we just have to do more to get full participation? Perhaps you could comment on that. That is an interesting question. <laughs> and it's so good to have historians in the audience that might be able to help with that. I will not speculate as to what the politicians were thinking. The politicians are in the audience, too. This is not my contract for today. <laughs> this is what advisors do. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, uh, they thought that um, it, at different steps along the way, they had taken care of what needed to be done. But after the Black Codes, uh, laws that the white Southern legislatures put in place immediately after the Civil War deprived uh, African Americans of so many of the rights of citizens 
the 14th Amendment, so they, they passed civil rights acts first to try to do that. Then they decided in the same way that the 13th Amendment followed the Emancipation Proclamation, which started a process that did not complete. The 14th Amendment uh, and the 15th Amendment, which followed after that. The 14th Amendment is maybe the most important uh, amendment to the Constitution that grants every person born in this country due process of law. And what they were finding is in states such as Virginia, that due process was not being granted. That slavery had ended, but the full uh, emer emergence of citizenship had not. Then the 15th Amendment comes in and says, and the right to vote shall not be circumscribed by race. And of course, it took another, the 19th Amendment to say it shall not be circumscribed by sex, too. But you're exactly right. One thing we need to remember, it took a long time for this to pass. And you've heard that dozens of people were voting against it, even as it was becoming the law of the land, even after the Civil War is over. The Democrats very often were opposing this until, well, to the very end. So we don't want to imagine that the struggle for equality and freedom was actually sealed by the Civil War. It took Reconstruction, and I think one thing that people, in my experience, don't understand is that Reconstruction actually began in 1867, not immediately after the war. So two years to see if the white South would come back in and fulfill the spirit of the 13th Amendment, but it did not. And so it took the two amendments and then seven years of Reconstruction to try to bring it all together. Hope that answers your Thank question. You. And I believe the black code started in 1866, um, and, and so there was a need. Want to come up? That's why I put good people around me. <laughs> what role did the Ku Klux Klan and the activities have on passage of these amendments? Uh, we learned what they did, and how did that affect what happened with the 14th, 15th, and 16th Amendments? 1866, Ku Klux Klan, Pulaski, yeah. Tennessee. That's right. Lord, that's got all the all That's the all you know. That's all you know. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know where they were and when they started. This is like comps. Get out what you do know. <laughs> uh, I, I would think it's fair to say, Senator Marsh, that the Ku Klux Klan played a large role in showing that you would have to have the 14th Amendment. That um, even if the um, a formal institutions of law were in the hands of friends of the freed people that basically terrorist organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan uh, designed to circumvent uh, formal structures of law. Uh, the 14th Amendment by itself would not end that, and so it's not until early 1870s in South Carolina that there are actually hearings about the Ku Klux Klan. So the Klan emerged in part precisely to circumvent things like the, the 14th and 15th Amendment. Yeah, it may be illegal, but you have to catch us first, and we still run the sheriff's offices and things like that. So, you know, it's part of a, a struggle that um, basically went on until the Civil Rights Movement uh, to try to constantly find ways to circumvent the law of the land. I think we all know about the 15th Amendment, even though it says you may not um, circumscribe voting by nature of race, here in Virginia, uh, was one of the last southern states that completely rewrote re its constitution after Reconstruction to say, well, it may not be race, but we'll make you pay a poll tax, things like that. A so literacy test. Literacy test, lots of circumvention Grandpa of this. So it's constant struggle back and forth, and the 14th Amendment, of course, becomes the foundation for the civil rights struggle. So it's, it's all this is a very long answer to your question, but it just shows what a good question it was. I hope we don't have any other questions that are that good. <laughs> They're here. What other questions do we have? We have the microphones. It'd be a shame for them to go to waste. Would you like to comment for a moment on the states that initially rejected the amendment and the one that never ratified it, as I understand it? Initially, the, uh, well, initially there were resolutions to uh, maintain slavery, um, and they were um, largely by the Democrats. They believe very strongly that slavery, um, each state should have the right to decide what they wanted to do. Um, but the Republicans believe very firmly that they 
had to marshal their energies and get everyone united and kept pressing. In fact, there were about 61 uh, drafts um, to extinguish slavery, abolish slavery. Um, and finally, they came to a conclusion with the, the draft of the 13th Amendment. In the spirit of your question, if I'm not mistaken, Delaware in 1913 uh, finally ratified the 13th Amendment. Uh, obviously, it did not require their ratification to be law, but that tells you something symbolic about just the refusal to go along with the spirit of that. So, yes? Is there still one state that never ratified the I feel like maybe you know that there is, and I don't. <laughs> I have read in one source that Mississippi never ratified the 13th Amendment. Mississippi ratified it in 1995. Yes. You've just seen one of the great, one of the great pleasures of being a teacher is when your student knows more about it than you do, so that's great. Is there another question? It was in 1865, and it was uh, in February. Um, Alexandria, the restored government in Alexandria, and uh, do you want to say more about? No, you're doing great. <laughs> this is why, this is why he was my advisor. You always make me looking over your shoulder in front of several hundred <laughs> yeah. people. <laughs> The restored government in Alexandria really ratified uh, the 13th Amendment, February, I think, 9th. And Virginia generally followed a very rapid path through this kind of uh, compromise to get through Reconstruction. So Reconstruction is over by 1870 in Virginia. And so partly because they put together a conservative government that sort of uh, split the difference. And so this is an early effort to, because large parts of Virginia have been occupied, there had always been a, a government that was recognized by the federal government as a legitimate government in Virginia, and they're the ones who passed the 13th Amendment. You're right to be surprised, uh, because it would not have been passed had the uh, former uh, leaders of the state been in power. Yeah, can, can you comment on what the 13th Amendment may have done or may not have done for women who had been former slaves or who were former slaves? Well, of course, uh, they could not vote. Um, no women could vote. Um, they were still under the uh, domination of husbands, um, but they were free from, from the, what's the word I want to use? Free from exploitation that had gone on within the plantation itself by slave owners, and that was the major thing with um, with enslaved women to be out from that kind of exploitation. And so we see um, a movement from the the plantation household into their own households, so they could be the the mothers, the wives of their own households. Um, after the 13th Amendment. We see a large entrepreneurial class coming about too. Many of them became laundresses. And then by the 1870s, you began to see more black women entering the education system. Um, they are becoming the teachers in the, the schools. Initially, you had the uh, teachers coming down from the north, both black and white, primarily white, but their mission was to educate the people here to be their own teachers, and those women were the, the large majority of teachers of those schools. I'm a little alarmed that I'm answering a question of a professor of law at the University of Richmond uh, to do this about anything, and, and with Judge Roger Gregory here as well. I can't believe I'm up here talking about the Constitution at all. But I do think it's important for people to remember that um, when the 15th Amendment comes along that does grant the right to vote to men, uh, feminists in the North who've been, often been great allies of the abolitionist movement uh, found that they were deprived of a right uh, that they felt should have been theirs. And so black women were remarkably politically active over the next, uh, throughout Reconstruction and even during the, the hardest days of disfranchisement um, that um, whenever there was any political organizing to be done, African-American women played an especially prominent role uh, and as soon as the 19th Amendment comes along, 
there's sort of some of the, the structures in the churches and the women's clubs and so forth immediately began to mobilize black women for voting. So it's a, even though they were not legally granted uh, that right, uh, it was a persistent determination uh, on the part of African-American women to make sure that the structure were in place. And also they made sure that they encouraged the black men to vote. I think people would be surprised to know that um, in the late 19th century, voter turnout was much higher than it is now. So you'd have had 80 and 90 percent of people voting. Um, and one of the reasons that they made the new constitutions with things like the understanding clause and poll taxes is because black men and the women with them refused to give up until the constitutions were actually rigged to make it impossible for them to vote. So I think people often imagine at the end of Reconstruction that uh, black voting died off, but it didn't die off until it was actually the sort of state driven through its heart in the, the new uh, uh, constitution of the 1890s in the first decade of the 20th century. Senator Marsh has another question. Before you start, let me mention that if you're interested in looking at voting patterns, um, there is the website at the University of Rich Richmond Digital Lab. Um, that will give you an overview of those voting patterns. I'm going to take advantage of this historical expertise up here and in the audience. Uh, what role did African Americans, newly freed slaves, play as elected officials in this movement toward freedom? I understand there were African Americans elected shortly after slavery. Could you describe the role they played, in, if any, in the struggle? in passing these amendments? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a priceless moment. <laughs> now, do you want to say something? It's you your first. show. You go first. You're my mentor. <laughs> well, I, you know, obviously they could not have played a role in the 13th Amendment since they were not in political power at that time. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the 14th and 15th Amendments were also probably done um, w without the direct involvement of African Americans at the national level, because that would not have come until 1867 uh, with the military reconstruction. And so th these were, I think the best way to see these is an outgrowth of the war rather than the beginning intentionally of, of reconstruction. Reconstruction grows out of the frustration of the limitations of the power of only power from Washington. So it required the bravery of black office holders who became the sheriffs and the tax collectors and the customs collectors um, and serving on jurors. And so Reconstruction was basically created to allow African Americans to create a culture of equality on the ground. So I think that that is the way to see that the amendments were necessary but not adequate in order to create something like a real democracy in the South. When we look at those first uh, black legislators, um, we can get a, a composite picture. Most of them were literate. Most of them had patronage ties. Um, many of them um, were either light-skinned or uh, light, uh, had some white background. Um, but we do know that most of them had uh, strong ties with the church as well. Some of them, in fact, were ministers. So we do, we are able to get a picture of who, of their backgrounds. Laurenette. Laurenette, can you speak to the connection of the 13th Amendment and the celebration that we know today as Juneteenth? Well, Juneteenth is celebrated usually around the third Saturday in June, I believe. Um, and it's celebrated because many of the enslaved people who were in places such as Texas had not received word that they were free. And so when the word finally did get to them, this is when they started celebrating um, their emancipation. Um, we do know, though, that it was very difficult for people to uh, celebrate their emancipation. Here at the Virginia Historical Society, we have a broadside that was printed by uh, African Americans, I believe in 1866, that said, uh, it was addressed to the white people that said, we are not celebrating the fall of the Confederacy, but we are celebrating our freedom. And so there was still a great deal of animosity about this. That's one thing that we've forgotten is that throughout the entire second half of the 19th century, 
there was an Emancipation Day celebration here in Richmond in which the African Americans celebrated. And what Lauren is referring to, it was celebrated on April 3rd, um, which happened to be when the city was delivered uh, by the Union soldiers. Uh, and the quotation, which I just happened to have read last week from my class, said, to the white people of Richmond, we, it's, we are not celebrating the downfall of the city, but we are celebrating God's deliverance of us from <laughs> perpetual bondage. Thanks very much. <laughs> you know, so, you know. But, you know, I, I, one of the things that I, I'm trying to think about, when should people of Virginia celebrate emancipation? In many ways, it, you could say it's May of 1861 when the, the, the dissolution of slavery begins down at Fort Monroe. Um, and, but for some reason, we sort of lost the momentum of, of acknowledging the centrality of emancipation. Um, and uh, so it's a very strongly entrenched African-American yeah. tradition in Richmond that we've kind of forgotten about. And so I think that it would be, whether it's Juneteenth or whether it's April 3rd or whether it's uh, the, the celebration of uh, the signing of the 13th Amendment, it doesn't matter. It would be good if there were a time that we would gather and think about the most important thing that ever happened in this country. Well, I think that is some of what the future of Richmond's past does, is to help us remember that time and to start thinking of the ways that we can commemorate a critical moment in America and Virginia's history, and, and Richmond's in particular. Dr. Lee, how did the wording of this amendment come into place? It took several senators and congressmen um, debating um, heatedly over this. Um, th there were some who felt that it should have been stronger, like um, Senator Sumner of Massachusetts, um, who believed that the equality should have been added to this. Um, but when they came to, to the conclusion that we see here, um, they felt very strongly this is as far as they could go. Good afternoon. Um, the last questioner brought up a great point. Uh, Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens. I'm wondering why we don't uh, hear enough about them as proponents of the rights of the freedmen. Um, whether someone can comment on that. Well, being a Virginian, um, usually, we don't, we have not heard too much about any, anybody other than, than Virginia. <laughs> but they were strong abolitionists, uh, both, I believe, from Massachusetts. Stevens, um, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, thank you. Northern. <laughs> um, and actually, this is one of the, the things that um, we strive very hard um, at the Historical Society to try to present a balanced uh, history as much as we can. I think that uh, one reason we don't remember, there was actually a strong effort to demonize those folks, especially, you see, in Birth of a Nation, it's a caricature of Thaddeus Stevens, whose motivation they imagined to be somehow lust for black women is the only reason they could imagine that white men of the North would risk so much to be advocates for black freedom. And so I think that, you know, uh, it's been actively expunged uh, for a number of generations. Part of the whole idea of reconstruction itself being a travesty. You know, we basically are still held hostage by birth of, an, I mean, birth of a nation and gone with the wind. You know, one thing that I wish, where's the movie about black people becoming free after 200 years of slavery? Where's the movie that's sympathetic to them rather than to the, to the former Confederates? And where's the movie that sees the bravery of that young white woman who comes down from Massachusetts, Charlottesville, to start a school? Or the bravery, the political bravery of Sumner and, and Stevens, who are not in the majority to make these things happen? You know, I think that another honest answer to your question is, is that we've not really been looking for white people who've done good things for black people. It's not really been to anybody's advantage to do, but we forget that Abraham Lincoln included, if he had not taken the chances that he had, 
and it's a fact that I've been pointing out to people, Abraham Lincoln won the same percentage of the vote in 1864 as he had in 1860. 45% of white northern men still voted against Abraham Lincoln in 1864, which gives you some idea of how entrenched opposition in the North to black freedom and progress was. And so I think that we, it, what that calls to our attention is that people like Stevens and Sumner are not just enacting some general northern goodness. They had to fight for every single thing that was won, which goes back to the very first question. That's why it took us three minutes to get this, is that it had to be fought over and over and over again. It's a great question. I think the legislature of Virginia, in creating the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission, recognized that there were some challenges uh, remaining in Virginia and charged us to uh, instill in the people of Virginia the principles of Dr. Martin Luther King. And uh, I don't know that they thought we were going to do it. <laughs> but it was a unanimous action by the legislature. They fund us a few thousand dollars a year, and they charge us to do it. Well, the people we have on the commission are so resourceful and the staff that we are able to actually begin to do it. And this Lincoln recognition is something that we had a tough time getting because there's so, such a preoccupation with the Confederacy. But we were determined to highlight the work of Lincoln. And we're doing it, and this 13th Amendment, uh, I think it's a significant achievement, significant to bring this here. We wanted to highlight it because if we had not, people might not even know it, they would be over, overcome by the Confederacy. This is an important part of the Civil War. And there's a, a drama, a play, a stage play called The Civil War, which shows the effect of the war on white soldiers and looted free slaves and slaves. And it's a powerful statement of how both slaves and free soldiers were treated equally. They lost families, they lost family members, and I hope we can get that play shown here in Virginia because it's very moving and it shows that they were, and I can't believe it took as long as it did for women to get the vote because they run everything <laughs> <laughs> and have done it. They should have gotten the vote long before they did, but that's a tribute to the stubbornness of men, I guess. I'd like to ask a question about the 13th Amendment's um, provision. That's the 13th Amendment says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except for a crime of which a person has been duly convicted, shall not exist in the United States. So I'd like for you all to comment on that exception clause, except for a crime to which or for which a person has been duly convicted, um, and how that was interpreted by the Southern legislatures and courts um, following the Civil War in terms of um, it's a, an attempt to, to maintain slavery in the um, South, and if, if not in legal um, terms, at least in practical terms. That too is an interesting question. <laughs> um, what do you want well, to say? I, I can say, uh, Senator Marsh is pointing out, this probably as a, a, a legal requirement mm -hmm. uh, that you would have that in order to still have, uh, uh, to have prisons and so forth. But uh, the point that I would make, I was at the uh, Black History and Cultural Center earlier today, and I encourage everybody to go today as well as to other things because it's Civil War Emancipation Day and it's all free. Uh, and upstairs there is um, an exhibit there uh, that's focusing on uh, soon after the war, this clause uh, was allowed the white Southern uh, lawmakers and law enforcers uh, to incarcerate enormous numbers of black Southern men and to actually lease out their labor uh, to independent contractors. And that went on for decades. And in some ways is returning today, the idea that you can have private enterprise taking advantage of people who have been convicted of, of violating a state law. So I think that, you know, you will see people saying that the number 
of African-American men held in prisons today um, is approaching the numbers who would have been in slavery in 1860 and so forth. So I think that um, there is no doubt, this, uh, this is actually something I've, I've wrote, written about, that the law was very intentionally changed to create very low thresholds of incarceration for petty crime, for petty theft, for things that would otherwise have not resulted in incarceration precisely because it was a way to seize upon the labor and to control uh, these free black men. So the spirit of your question, I, I think, is right, is that uh, then, and some people argue now, is that this, whether that was intended, uh, is the closest that we come to slavery in this country today. The um, prison industry has grown phenomenally, particularly in the 20th century since 1980. Um, but we also see that prison system growing immediately after the Civil War, and perhaps because of um, clauses such as this. Um, we do know very early on in America's founding that um, the the, ground, the playing field was not level. As early as 1640, black men could not own a gun nor ammunition. Um, and we see in laws such as this that it creates a system where there's great inequality. Um, and those laws perpetuated over the next two centuries, um, not only to black men, to black women as well. And we are still, um, suffering under that legacy as well. I want to cut off the questions, but I do want to announce before someone leaves that uh, we have planned a reception with lots of food and beverage for your entertainment. It's when we leave here, we go up to the next level and we will see that you're amply fed <laughs> until the supplies run out. But, uh, but uh, you can continue with your questions, but I don't, I see someone getting up, so I want to make sure you don't leave before you, get, you eat if you want to. I just wanted to make a brief comment um, to follow up on your question that there is an excellent book, um, I looked at the title, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman, who traces the history of um, the re-enslavement of African Americans um, from the Civil War until the end of World War I, um, with that exception clause. And he was, he was a Wall Street Journal um, bureau chief in Atlanta who was tasked with researching how corporations benefited from this. And it wasn't just Southerners, actually many Northern companies leased prisoners from the South to work um, for free for them or for very, very, they, they paid the states, but the people who were in prison didn't get that. But Slavery by Another Name is an excellent Pulitzer Prize winning book on that subject of the control of, of uh, black folks after the Civil War. Thank you for that. There was also a public television uh, um, program recently on about that. We do have bookmarks for you as well, and the Virginia Historical Society is open every day, 10 to 5, um, Monday through Saturday, and 1 to 5 on Sunday. And we're, we are free. <laughs> I'd also encourage you to look at a new website at the University of Richmond, Richmond called uh, Visualizing Emancipation that is pertinent to the subject today. Thank you so very much for being here. We hope this is not the last time that we see you. Come back again and again. And as one lady in the Civil War era said, we shall never, any of us, be the same again. Thank you. Thank you.